0: Let's find our place in 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel chapter 13 is where we're going to begin. 2 Samuel chapter 13. I think we understand that the top priority for anybody is to establish a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Nothing is more important than knowing that you're on your way to heaven, okay? But once salvation has been secured and a person embarks on a life of service to Jesus, the question should be and becomes, what should be the focus of my life? If we could put it another way, we ask this question. Of all the things about which I'm going to be watching and working on and learning, what are life's most important factors? What are life's most important factors? Now, our students in the school and in the youth group will tell you that they hear these factors over and over and over again. And on the one hand, I'm sorry, but I'm not. You see, when when people in your life whether it's your parents, whether it's your teachers, whether it's your pastor, your youth pastor, whatever, your principal, family members, you know, grandma and grandpa, aunt and uncle, whatever, when they keep hammering things over and over again, it's not because we look for ways to be uncool. Believe it or not, I want kids to think I'm cool. I'm not, but I want them to think that. I want to, in, in a holy way, I want to deceive them into thinking that I'm with it, that I'm hip, you know? I'm failing miserably as I get older. I used to could kind of display that a little bit when I was younger. Now, as I've, I'm in my 40s, there's just nothing cool left about me, really. It's all evaporating. And we don't sit around, we don't, you know, parents and teachers and preachers and all that, we don't sit around and say, okay, what can we, what is a foolproof method for us to just irritate these kids constantly? All right, let's hit this, 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 and this. That'll do it. We don't have meetings. We don't have a secret club. There's no secret handshake, okay? When we keep hammering on these factors over and over again, there's two primary reasons. Number one, the Bible speaks on this so much. And it's always in our best interest to heed God's word. It's not just my job, it's my privilege and my honor to tell you what the Bible says about anything and everything I can. But then number two, and this is not as high as the Bible, obviously the Bible trumps everything, but can I tell you something? I think I speak for parents too. My own experience confirms the importance of this stuff. I cannot... Yes, I have a strange way of showing it, and I struggle with, with interpersonal relationships. I am much more comfortable speaking to a crowd this size than I am one person. It's weird, but I am. But I cannot overstate, and again, I'm speaking for parents, I'm speaking for teachers, I'm speaking for Sunday school teachers, I'm speaking for concerned members of the church. Young people, we love you more than you know. We lose sleep over you. We, 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 we wake up and, and, and are led of the Lord to pray because this world wants to destroy you. And, and I've, I've just watched in utter horror over the years at how many parents are either blissfully ignorant of the dangers or unwilling to confront them to the peril of their children. So this, this kind of stuff doesn't keep popping up because, well, there's the preacher's hobby horse. He's pulled out his whip on that subject again. No, it is because I bear in my own experience so many scars and so many regrets and so many heartaches and would to God. I would take years shaved off my life if I could keep you from making some of the dumb decisions that I have. This is especially true with my own children, but it is true with everybody's kids. I don't love you more than your parents do, but I love you a whole lot. I think I love you as much as any pastor can. And any parent or any adult that's been in charge of ministering to young people can tell you how painful it is to watch. As a promising young person, some student, some youth group member, fails to see the importance of the warnings. Sometimes they purposely ignore your counsel, and you watch in absolute, utter agony as every trauma that's predicted, both by God's word and experience, comes true into their lives, leaving scars they'll never remove. I'm not one of these people that likes to spend a lot of time, oh, the pastor, it's so hard, oh, it's it carries with it some burdens unique to it. That's true. But, and Brother Helms will back me up on this. Perhaps the hardest thing about pastoring is so often tragedy is the only thing that proves us right, and so these young people will recognize these things I'm about to talk about. I'm going to give you the three factors up front. In fact, uh, my my slide lady, once you once you. Uh, Um, Once you get through this next slide, you're good to go. You can relax. Don't go to sleep, but you can relax. Okay? So, So the title of the message is this, Life's Three Most Important Factors. Now, I'm going to go ahead and give them all three to you, so you can go ahead and take your notes right now. That doesn't mean you can check out. But you can go ahead and get your notes done right now if you're taking notes. Okay? Here's the three factors. Ready? Appetites. Okay, next, influences, next, boundaries. Every struggle that a young person faces falls in one of these three categories. Appetites, influences, and boundaries. And tonight, we're going to look at the life of a young man who rebelled in all three of these areas. So, Claire, you're good until the so what? Okay? So, kick back. He rebelled in all three areas. And we're going to ask a difficult question. Why? How does something like this happen? Because we're going to look at a young man who had all of the advantages, all of the privileges that you could imagine in this time in biblical Israel. He had everything. And yet, in the matter of appetites, influences, and boundaries, he blew it. All three. All three. These three factors we're going to look at in the life of a young man named Ammon. Ammon was the firstborn son of King David. Now, I'm going to have to be careful with the text. All of God's word is inspired, but we need to use wisdom in how we handle God's word. And we have young children in here. And so there are going to be times, I hope you won't think it as being disloyal to the text, but there's going to be times that I'm going to word it in such a way that you parents don't have to prematurely answer questions. And we'll do you a solid on that one, okay? By the way, there's nothing we're going to read about tonight that teenagers aren't exposed to every day. But let's look at the life of Ammon. Let's learn about life's three most important factors. Can I give you quickly the narrative? Ammon, the firstborn. In most cases, Ammon would have been next in line for the king, for the the throne. It appears as though David was already leaning heavily towards appointing Absalom as his successor. I don't know why. That could have factored into this thing. If you're the firstborn and you get hopped over for Absalom, you know, long-haired Absalom, you know. If you get hopped over for him, that may already have generated a little bit of bitterness. Parents, we've got to be super careful to not... Children are different and you have to handle them differently, but there should never be a moment that our kid thinks this one's loved more than the other. This one's preferred more than the other. I'll give you an example. In my wife's family, everybody knows her sister, LaWanda, is the favorite. We all know that. And it has caused no small amount of, of heartache in our family. My mother-in-law is terrible. No, I'm kidding. It's not that bad. <laughs> LaWanda was the favorite, okay, until the fourth child came, Prince Joey. And then everybody took a back seat to Prince Joey, the firstborn son You know, got to be super careful about that kind of thing. I experienced that. I'm the firstborn, the firstborn son. And I thought I had it made until 10 years later when my sister was born. My parents didn't love me at all. (laughs) Be careful about that. But let's get into the text itself. Let's stop speculating and see what the Bible actually says. That's always useful, isn't it? So let's look at Ammon. And let's begin looking at the subject of appetites, okay? Chapter 13, verse 1. And it came to pass after this that Absalom, the son of David, had a fair sister whose name was Tamar, and Ammon, the son of David, loved her. So Tamar is a half-sister to Ammon, okay? She's beautiful. She is a lovely woman on all accounts. And Ammon develops an unholy affection for her. The Bible uses the word love, but you understand that love does not always mean proper godly love. Okay. Verse 2. And Ammon was so vexed that he fell sick for his sister Tamar, for she was a virgin. And Ammon thought it hard for him to do anything to her. Even within his his wrong thinking, there was something, some kind of little stopgap measure in Ammon that understood this was wrong. This was wrong. But what he did is he began to cultivate an appetite for something he shouldn't have. Now, this was true since God laid down the law. A man should not have his sister, half sister or not. Ammon knew this was wrong, both from the word of God, but also from his conscience. And yet he had cultivated an appetite. And once he had what he wanted, we see in a very ugly way that when this quote unquote love, which in reality was lust, was finally satisfied. He never loved her to begin with. Once he received from that the gratification that he wanted, he threw away like trash. Verse 15 Then Ammon hated her exceedingly, so that the hatred wherewith he hated her was greater than the love wherewith he had loved her. And Ammon said unto her, Arise, be gone. Remember two principles regarding appetites. Number one, appetites, once they are cultivated, can be suppressed but rarely destroyed. So you better be mighty careful about what kind of appetites you cultivate. I've used this example before. Why am I in the shape that I'm in? It's not because of some past childhood trauma. That does happen to some people. But the shape that I'm in is because I have cultivated some appetites for things that I I could get away with because I had the metabolism and the activity to burn it off. But I got news for you, beloved. Hostess cupcakes and Twinkies don't burn off like they used to. I'm older, I'm slower, I'm more tired, and yet that appetite that I cultivated so long ago still is alive and well within me. Appetites, once cultivated, can be suppressed but rarely destroyed. And and young people, you've heard this before. You better be careful about what kind of appetites that you cultivate because what ends up happening is they dog you for the rest of your life. A second principle. Appetites, when left to themselves, tend to deepen in severity. Before long, what starts out here isn't enough. We need more and more, and it gets deeper and it gets deeper and it gets deeper. Now, this is true positively, too. You develop an appetite for the things of God, it will deepen over time. Now, let's ask a question, an unpleasant question. How could Ammon come to a place that he desired his sister? You've met my sister. She's a lovely young lady. I recognize her as being a beautiful young woman. Not for nothing, they say she favors me. So of course she'd be beautiful. She and I both favor the Caffrey side of our family, so yeah. But I can't, I cannot fathom ever seeing her in such a way as Ammon saw Tamar. By the way, this isn't new. Abraham married his half sister. Do you know that? Ew. But that was pre-law. So there was no. Bible against it, but still, who? Cain. Who'd Cain marry? Had to be his sister. Nobody else was there. Who? Moses. This one maybe gets me the most. Do you know who Moses mar- who Moses' dad married? Amram? His aunt. Jochebed was Amram's aunt. Who? And we say, ooh, and we have some moral compass there, but here's a man that gave no thought to how out of bounds this was. I got news for you, friend. There are all kinds of sins and appetites out there that if we don't get a handle on things, we'll find ourselves out of bounds too. He cultivated an immoral appetite and made no attempt to suppress it. His immoral appetite deepened to where normal sins weren't enough. Illicit material that you find on the internet. You understand what I'm talking about? How do people get into that weird, it's all wicked, don't get me wrong, but I mean stuff that's way... Way beyond anything somebody would consider normal. How does that happen? It happens because the normal stuff isn't enough. And they go worse, and they go worse, and they go worse. Now, here's the question we have to ask ourselves. Whether it's your child, whether it's your student, whether it's your grandchild, whether it's anybody you have authority over, what appetites are we allowing our kids to cultivate in their lives? I tell you, it falls under basically three categories. First of all, we can allow them to cultivate appetites for rebellion. Disrespectful little kids become disrespectful young adults. I hear my wife say this all the time. If it isn't cute when they're 13, it's not going to be cute when they're two either. little two-year-old. No! (laughs) Isn't that cute? No, it is not. Because it's not going to be cute when they're 13 either. And if you don't nip it now, you've got problems coming ahead. Appetites for rebellion. And little wonder, because we live in a society that's built on rebellion. Oh, the 60s were all about rebelling against authority. And now the 2020s are all about rebelling against authority. And we celebrate that. as That's character right there. Speaking truth to power. And our kids watch TV shows in which they talk to mom and dad like they're dogs. And then wonder how in the world that finds its way into our home. Hmm? There's the appetite for rebellion. Oh, here we go. Appetites for the Romantic. Now, this is where we get in territory where y'all are thinking, well, you don't have teenagers yet. You don't know how it is. Listen, if I wait until my kids are grown and gone to preach truth to you, then I might as well resign right now and let somebody come in who can. Because you've got to hear this. My child may not be 13 yet, but I am telling you, I have seen this over over and over and over and over and over and over and over. And if I fail to be the watchman on the wall that cries out against this stuff, then I am derelict in my duty. I cannot fathom why anybody, high school and below, needs to be in a relationship. Now, if you are, I don't hate you. I'm not against you. I'm not mad at you. I've never given you a hard time about it. I've never, and I don't keep up with it. I can't. I don't have the strength for that kind of drama. Okay. Well, isn't it isn't it normal? Absolutely. But but as Christians, we're not shooting for normal, we're shooting for noble. There's a whole lot of things that are normal that aren't good or aren't the best or aren't helpful. I have seen parents take their 4-year-old kids and pair them off and take pictures and talk about this one being with this one. Don't! What are you doing? Innocent relationships become problematic entanglements. You know how I know? I've lived it. In my school, a Christian school, not too much different from GCA, you weren't anything if you didn't have a boyfriend or a girlfriend. If you were single, you were lesser. And so we just paired off. And sometimes we'd pair off with the worst possible pairings because we had to have somebody. I, I Listen, boy, I've got to be careful about this. I think about some of the girls that I paired off with in school, and if I'm honest with you, and this isn't their fault, but I look back and I'm like, man, what was I thinking? And they're, you know what they're doing right now? What was I thinking? Look at that guy. He's ballooned. I dodged a bullet on that one, didn't I? But you know what I look back on my high school and I remember? I didn't have much fun. You know why I didn't have much fun? Because I got too caught up in trying to keep this girl happy and maintain this relationship. And I I didn't actually enjoy my friends. Remember the principle. Appetites deepen in severity. And one day soon, texting and hand-holding aren't going to be enough. I love this quote by Vody Baucham. Young people dating is like shopping without money. There are only two eventualities. Either you're constantly frustrated because you can't have what you want, or you end up taking something that doesn't belong to you. Teenagers love this message. And and once again, this doesn't mean that tomorrow at school, I I don't know who's paired up with who anymore. I I used to try to keep up with it. And you know I'm not going to mistreat you. But if I stay silent because I want you to like me, then I'm not worthy to be your pastor. I have seen too many good young people be put in a bad situation enough times, and they mess up. Can I tell you something from the perspective of a man who's older, but I can still remember when I was young? I'm telling you, hand-holding isn't enough. We cultivate appetites for rebellion, appetites for the romantic, and then before you know it, it's appetites for the reprehensible. It's only a matter of time before these appetites surface and our kids go the way of the world. And no kid, no parent thinks their kid's going to do it. But eventually they deny their faith. It happens all the time. We look at a man named Ammon and we see he developed a bad appetite. He did nothing to squelch it and it went so far out of bounds that we can't even fathom how awful it was. But what about influences? Verse number 13. Verse 3 begins with a chilling statement. Verse 2, Ammon was so vexed that he fell for his sister, oh, sick for his sister Tamar, for she was a virgin, and Ammon thought it hard for him to do anything to her. But Ammon had a friend. A friend whose name was Jonadab, the son of Shimea, David's brother. And Jonadab was a very subtle man. He was his cousin. Sometimes, boy, sometimes the worst influences we have are in our family. Yeah. Did you know there's people in my family I won't let my kids around? Why? Because Ammon had a friend, and he was subtle. Do you know who else it says was subtle? Now, the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field. I love our school, and we got some good kids in our school. But any school that reaches the size that ours does, you're going to have some kids that find their way in that are subtle. By the way, young people, we know. They're not fooling us. We know who's up to no good. I want you to do something about it, because sometimes wisdom dictates that we hold off and let God work on it. Now, there have been times that a kid has been subtle and crossed the line, and we had no choice but to show them the door, and that breaks our heart any time we have to do that. But we will do it. We will. Jonadab. Ammon. Here's how you do it. Here's what you do, Ammon. Lay thee down on thy bed, verse 5. And make thyself sick, and when thy father cometh to see thee, say unto him, I pray thee, let my sister Tamar come, and give me meat, and dress the meat in my sight, that I may see it, and eat it at her hand. So Ammon lay down. He listened to his counsel. You've heard this many times. Show me your friends. I'll show you your future. We are, soon will become, those with whom we associate. Hey, parents, you have both the right and the responsibility to monitor the kind of people that influence your children, even within your own family. And not only are you not wrong, it is incumbent upon you that you squash those influences that are bad for them. They're going to be mad at me. Yep. And they'll get over it. And they'll come to a place in their life where they'll come back and say, Mom, Dad, thank you for having the courage to make me mad for my own good. Ammon was wicked all on his own, but Jonadab helped him think out of his plan, think out his plan. Psalm 1, the very first verse of the Psalms, blessed is the man that walketh not. What's blessed mean? Happinesses upon happinesses. You want your kid to be happy? Don't let him walk in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of the scornful. You ever notice your kids get especially contentious? Now, I know none of them in here do this. But kids out there, every once in a while, they just get hard to get along with. They're fighting all the time. They're mouthing off at parents, rolling their eyes, all that kind of thing. Can I make a suggestion to you? Find out who they're hanging around. Because you know what the Bible says? The Bible says in Proverbs twenty ten, 10, cast out the scorner and contention shall go out. A strife and reproach shall cease. So if you reverse that and you look at the converse of that, a lot of strife and contention is because there's a scorner in the midst. By the way, our kids' influences aren't just friends and family. How about social media? I am so sick of influencers. And can I go on record and say, I do not care what this Hollywood person or this singer thinks about anything. But when we give our kids unfettered access to the internet, we are begging for wrong influence. We're begging for it the music industry, Hollywood, television. But can I remind you that statistically the greatest influence on a child remains their parents. You are not without hope. You are not without help. You can still make a difference. We've talked about appetites and influences in Ammon's life, but then we see he had no boundaries. Look at verse 11. And when she had brought them unto him to eat, he took hold of her and said unto her, and he says, let's, let's do something we shouldn't do. And, he answered, and she answered him, nay, my brother, do not force me. For no such thing ought to be done in Israel. Do not thou this folly. And I, whither shall I cause my shame to go? And as for thee, thou shalt be as one of the fools in Israel. Now, therefore, I pray thee, speak unto the king, for he will not withhold me from thee. Howbeit he would not hearken unto her, but being stronger than she, he assaulted her. He took what he wanted. There should be a natural boundary in a man's mind that keeps him from desiring his sister. He passed that boundary. There should be a natural boundary in a man's mind to not assault a woman. He passed that boundary. And it is evident that there were no boundaries placed by him or his father, the king, that limited his actions when he had no inclination to do so. My pastor for years was Pastor John Brothers. He's in heaven now, and he said it a billion times We stay out of trouble when we make plans to stay out of trouble. The most dangerous people are those with limitless resources and no one to tell them no. How many professional athletes have we seen that came into the spotlight? Millions of dollars, and all they had surrounding them were yes-men. And they squandered everything they had and now live lives of poverty. Actors who had everything at their fingertips, and they find them laying on the floor, dead from a drug overdose. No boundaries. No boundaries. We must train our young people to set their own boundaries, but we also have to be willing to do it ourselves when they will not. It's a fun message, huh? The kids took a hit tonight, didn't they? But that's only half the message. You see, we look at the life of Ammon and we wonder, how could a young man with such advantage and privilege walk such a path? How could the firstborn son of the man after God's own heart fail in all three of these areas? The same question comes to mind as I think back over 18 years of pastoral ministry, wondering how kids with all the involvement of family and church still wander away into a life of heartache and regret. And then it hit me. I have dedicated enormous amounts of time and energy into hammering these three factors, appetites, influences, and boundaries, into the minds and hearts of young people. And young people, I owe you an apology because I have wore you out in school and in youth group and campfires and everything else. And compared to how many times you've had to sit through that, I have done a very poor job of hammering it into the minds of the people that really need to hear it. And that's your parents. Because the reason that our kids fail in the matter of appetites, influences, and boundaries is because their parents fail in the matter of appetites and influences and boundaries and so do their grandparents, and so do their aunts and uncles, and so do people not related to them in the church that just don't pay attention. If we have any hope of saving our kids, we've got to start living it. And I include that, I include me in that paradigm. Johnny and Sally need to be careful about appetites, influences, and boundaries, but so does Johnny and Sally's parents, and so do their grandparents, and so do their neighbors, and so do their teachers. Ammon had a problem with these areas because his father had a problem with these areas. We've been in 2 Samuel chapter 13, go back to to chapter 11. We look at David's example in this area. Mom, dad, aunt, uncle, grandma, grandpa, whoever, we need to ask ourselves this question. How am I doing in the matter of my appetites? in the matter of my influences, in the matter of my boundaries. David had a problem with his boundaries. Second Samuel 11, verse 1. It came to pass after the year was expired at the time when kings go forth to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the children of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David tarried still at Jerusalem. He saw Bathsheba, and in verse 4, he sent messengers and took her, and she came in unto him, and they did wrong. David had a boundary, an expectation. Kings were to be at war at that time. He ignored that boundary. And he had no person or mechanism to keep him from doing wrong. Do I think he had plans that night to sin with Bathsheba? I don't. And most sin is not something we plan. It's something we fail to plan for. He had no boundaries set to protect him. 1 Corinthians ten twelve: Wherefore, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed, lest he fall. Romans 13, verse 14. But put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ, and make not provision for the flesh, to fulfill the lusts thereof. I've touched on this before. By God's grace, I have been physically faithful to my wife for the duration of our marriage. I say physically faithful because Jesus said, if you ever look at a woman with lust in your heart, you've committed adultery already. I wish I could say I never have, but I have, and every man in here has. But as far as physical fidelity, by God's grace, I've never cheated on my wife. Why? Well, I do love her immensely. And I joke around about how, you know, I have the added insulation in my life of women just don't really want anything to do with me. So that's, that's always helpful. <laughs> but that's not always been. I've had a couple of occasions in which some woman was a little flirty. I didn't recognize it. My wife sure did. Mhm. But do you know why my wife and I have maintained our fidelity? It's not because I'm a super Christian. It's because God has helped me to have the good sense to put boundaries in my life that make it harder to do wrong. Or you ought to be a strong enough Christian to just not even be tempted by that. That's foolish talk. Because I don't care how strong my spirit and soul get. I'm still in this old flesh, and it is still rotten. And if Paul said, in my flesh dwells no good thing, how much more true is that of me? And I'm just like any young person in here. You put me in the wrong situation enough times with a woman who's crazy enough to want me, I will fall. And if we, don't, if we don't put boundaries in place, we are in serious trouble. David David had no boundaries, nobody to tell him no, and he fell. Now, here's the question. Why should Ammon establish boundaries if he never saw his dad do it? You know what else? David had a problem with appetites. Look at verse 2. And it came to pass in an evening tide. David arose off from off his bed and walked upon the roof of the king's house, and from the roof he saw a woman washing herself, and the woman was very beautiful to look upon. Now, I've heard a lot of talk been given to, well, Bathsheba shouldn't have been bathing by a window. True. True. But that in no way, shape, or form excuses David. David can't help what he sees inadvertently, but he can help whether or not he keeps looking. And there's, there's two lines we need to walk here. Do I believe that we ought to dress modestly in a way that's not provocative? Absolutely. Young ladies, man, I want to be blunt, but not inappropriately so. If you dress in a way to attract men don't be surprised at what you attract. You'll attract a young man that's only interested in how you look. And I got news for you. That's not going to last forever. You may stay beautiful your whole, whole life, but eventually that guy's going to get bored and he's going to move on. So yes, you do have an obligation. Hey men, we have an obligation with how we look too. But to fail in that obligation does not excuse the other side. Ladies, yoga pants aren't appropriate to go to Walmart. Hmm. But if I see you, that doesn't excuse me to have bad thoughts either. See, we all got we all got a, a hand in this, don't we? I believe I've covered everybody tonight. I've made myself mad. We're tempted to think that David cultivated a wrong appetite with Bathsheba. No. That appetite was already there. What? David fully realized this wrong appetite when he took his second wife. David, at this point in his life, has a minimum of eight named wives. That's not including the ones that aren't named. How many wives should he have had? One. His wife should still be the daughter of Saul, Michael. And even if you allow for, well, Saul took her back and gave her to somebody else. Okay. Then Abigail. That should have been it. But oh, no. No. You've got Michael, Abigail, Ahinoam, Maacah, Haggith, Abital, Eglah, Bathsheba, and that's not including the ones that aren't named. What do we see in David? He had an appetite for women that, that started way before Bathsheba, and he did nothing to curtail it. He never suppressed it, let alone eliminated it. David's children observed a father who was plagued with an immoral appetite. How do we know? How do we know that his kids noticed? Listen to what Tamar says. In chapter 13, verse 13, Ammon is about to assault her. Listen to what she says. Whither shall I cause my shame to go? And as for thee, thou shalt be was one of the fools in Israel. Now, therefore, I pray thee, speak unto the king, for he will not withhold me from thee. Go talk to dad. He'll let you have me. What? That tells me that their assessment of their dad's morality was pretty low. What sins are present in our kids' lives because they preserved, or observed rather, a permissive attitude in our lives? What have they seen me watch? What have they heard me listen to? What have they heard me say? Who have they seen me hanging around? Because if they see it in my life, why should they work on it in theirs? David had a problem with boundaries. He had a problem with appetites. He had a problem with influences. Verse 14, we're back in chapter 11. He has found out that Bathsheba is with child. Something I noticed not too long ago. As wicked as all of this is, have you ever realized that David didn't have to do any of this to cover it up? The absolute easiest thing to do would have been to end the pregnancy. In all of their wickedness, it never occurred to them to take the life of an innocent, unborn baby. Would to God, we still had that mindset today. Now his options, his other options, were no better. But look at verse 14. It came to pass in the morning that David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. See, he's tried to cover this up by having people think that this is Uriah's baby. He has tried to set this thing up to where Uriah would be with his wife. And so when she turns up showing everybody's like, oh, Uriah and Joab Bathsheba are having another kid. But it didn't work because Uriah had this, this, this sticky little thing called character. Uriah would not spend time with his wife because he found himself unfaithful to the cause for which they were fighting. So he left David with no choice in his mind. I've got to get rid of Uriah. Came to pass in the morning that David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. And he wrote in the letter saying, Set ye Uriah in the forefront of the hottest battle and retire you from him that he may be smitten and die. And it came to pass when Joab observed the city that he assigned Uriah unto a place where he knew that valiant men were. And the men of the city went out and fought with Joab, and there fell some of the people of the servants of David. And Uriah the Hittite died also. Then Joab sent and told David all the things concerning the war. You see, just like Ammon had a wrong influence, so did David. His name was Joab. Coincidentally, also his cousin. Joab was in a position to advise David against this plan. Well, you you wouldn't dare speak against the king. Oh, yes, he did. You remember when David was tore up over Absalom? It was Joab that came to him and said, you got to get a grip. you got a whole bunch of people that have risked their lives for you, and you're in here crying over the man that, that went against you. You need to stop this. So Joab was willing to tell the king no, but in this particular case, he didn't. He went along with it. There's two types of influences. Those that actively entice us to do wrong And those that passively consent when we want to do wrong. Any influence that isn't consistently encouraging us to do right is a wrong influence. All right, that leads us to the last slide. So what? Every one of us in this room, regardless of age, station, or position needs to take a close look at ourselves and those under our authority and examine through the lens of God's word three things. Let me give you a quick mea culpa. I don't have anybody in mind. God knows my heart. I didn't prepare this message. I can't wait for this one to hear it. God knows my heart. That's not the case. So if you're sitting there and you're thinking, he's talking about me. He's talking about my kid. That's not me you're hearing. It's the Holy Spirit. I am not trying to control anybody's life. You know, they say the third rail of politics is Social Security. You don't touch it or you'll die. The third rail of preaching and pastoring, it seems to me, has been when you dare to tell a parent they might be doing something wrong. Who are you to tell me how to raise my kids? And I have been hesitant about that for years. All I'm doing is giving you what the Bible teaches about appetites, influences, and boundaries. It's up to you to apply that in the way that you see best. Now, there comes a point where you, you start feeling like if I, keep, if I keep on this and become a broken record, I'm just going to push people away, and I don't want to do that. But i tell you what else I don't want to do. I don't want to sit in my office with my face in my hands weeping because the kids made a bad decision. I can't bear it. I can't bear it. And uh, all I can do is warn you. So if your kid has a different girlfriend every week, I can't do a thing about it. If they're on their cell phone every waking hour of the day, other than school, I can't do anything about that either. But y'all, it's not just about our kids. Our kids have taken a beating over this for the entire 12 years I've been here. I'm now turning my focus on us adults. Maybe the reason we see kids struggling with appetites, influences, and boundaries is because our adults aren't doing enough to deal with appetites, influences, and boundaries. (laughs) Well, preacher, at my age, I don't struggle with any of that hogwash. Y'all, I counseled a man. Remember, I've pastored two churches. I counseled a man who was struggling with pornography. He was 80. it doesn't necessarily mean he goes to this church either you understand that it's nobody in this room as long as this flesh is alive it struggles what's the so what it's pretty clear man we harp on our kids and and we do we need to stay on top of that and we need to be careful y'all who their friends are matters What influences them matters. What appetites they're cultivating matters. What boundaries are in their lives matters. But you know what? It also matters that mom and dad are doing it too. And it matters that grandma and grandpa are doing it. And it matters that the deacon and the Sunday school teacher and the trustee and whoever else, all of us, the pastor, that we have the right boundaries, the appetites, and the influences that we should in our lives. Because these things, once you are saved, these things are the three most important factors of your life.